Today we are discussing voyeurism and the over of uh, Danish pervert Nicholas Winding Refn with a very special guest. Who are you? I am Gay Stepdad. Hi, Gay Stepdad. What are you doing? I'm hanging out in my room with the windows open and smoking a cigarette out the window and drinking a whiskey and soda. Wait, what kind of cigarette are you smoking? An American spirit in the black box. Oh, classic. All my friends in college smoked that, but I've never been able to get off the Marlboros. They're good. They they kind uh they they just don't do it for me. They're like they're cowboy killers. I need something like a mechanic killer or oh. a, like a, a refinery worker killer, and I feel like that's what the American spirits do for me. That's a great a great way of saying American spirit. <laughs> and then I have to ask you, why do you follow me? I follow you because I think I saw some really good takes on Twitter that were really funny and pithy and had some kind of subtext behind them. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you see posts and they're just like, everything's on the surface. But when Mm -hmm. I saw your posts, I was like, oh, this person thinks a lot. And then I clicked (laughs) and then I clicked and saw drag queen in Japan. I'm like, wow, can it get any better? You know? Exactly. No, I um, I definitely am aware of my little narrative that I'm presenting and giving off with my tweets. Like, I, I love to do the subtext and make suggestions to worse behavior than I'm posting about. So <laughs> you, you've got me down to a T. <laughs> yeah, and I follow you because I think you have one of, like, the uh, most resonant and uh, sort of idiosyncratic gay voices in like the little corner of twitter were all corralled and and uh i love the constant drama of if you're going to get suspended or not as you battle through genius <laughs> takes <laughs> <laughs> well thank you oh my god just when you think you're not really accomplishing anything with your life someone tells you something like what you just told me thank you well, just when you think, uh, here comes a cross-dresser to praise your Twitter account, so hooray. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, something about Twitter is I value my anonymity, and you don't even know what I look like, and that means mm. a lot to me, that you like me for my takes and not anything else. Well, I thought that people would not be so uh, into like my drag or like be like visually appealed to it, but mm. as a... Uh, Time has gone by and more heterosexual men have followed my Twitter. I have found that to not be the case. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. I think that's another thing I like about your account, too, is you're not, you, you're, you know, you're not overly intellectual and you're not overly 
image obsessed you know you don't post thank god a million that's my greatest fear yeah like both of those things are are horrible like to find a good middle ground is desirable and i think you hit it yeah thank you i'll take it i'm trying to take compliments better so i appreciate it (laughs) thank you me too me too um let's see i brought you on the show today because as i said we're going to talk about uh, voyeurism and Lately, I've kind of been mentally regarding I'm So Popular as sort of like a cult initiation into my realm of thinking. And no one better than Gay Stepdad. One of my favorite kind of tweets you post is like about like your your little like harem of bottoms running around the country that I find (laughs) fascinating. (laughs) I love them. I love them. I think you might be uh, one of the first tops in at least a long time to speak on the show. cool that's good i think the last is i don't even know this for sure but i think like gian from twink rev is probably top ish oh yeah yeah he is yeah everyone else is definitely giving me like a wailing screaming like bottom femininity energy so right well you had dasha on and i i have i maybe it's because i'm gay but i can never really tell if a woman is a top or a bottom because you know women can Mm -hmm. be tops too Right. But something tells me that she writes that line between top and bottom. I agree. I think Dasha definitely has like a that sort of like icy top energy to her. Yes. Yeah, she can she can just sort of tell a man what to do with her eyes and not even have to speak and that's ultimate top behavior. If you don't have Absolutely. to speak, you don't speak and you get what you want and everyone gets what they want then that's what every top should be able to do. Meanwhile, Anna definitely is giving me power bottom, like Absolutely. not even power bottom, just like I know that she's taking it. Like I can, I can hear. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The the question isn't, um, are you an Anna or a Dasha's? Just merely if you're a top or a bottom. <laughs> right. 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 Well, part of like the like the top, you know, image that's really essential to me is you have to like be able to project like that ice like indifference and to be able to be like the image that everyone looks at but is not looking himself oh i love that yeah i think that's true because my boyfriend and i've been dating a a a man now i call him my boyfriend my boy is like a little joke but he uh (laughs) he's 30 something we've been dating for eight years now and he always he always yells at me for not ever looking at myself in the mirror. I I look at myself in the mirror for 10 seconds a day just to make sure I don't, my beard is straight or something. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. like, and it's not like something I'm proud of. It's it's just, it's just, I, I'm not obsessed with my own image. And I think that's, I think you're right. I think that's, <clears throat> that's kind of a top thing where you just exist in the world as, uh, as an image to be looked at, but not to be considered yourself does that make sense yeah you know like i, no, totally I don't really does. think of you know i work out but i'm not obsessed with muscles and things it's just like i'm not one of those like preening straight guys who struts in front of the mirror to me that's just like so unattractive oh yeah and i mean like uh <clears throat> i i think that when it comes to gay people like an overly polished top you know like one who has put in w- so much work into like crafting their sort of like masculine appearance, it ends up giving Ken doll. Yes, absolutely. Which is obviously asexual and uninteresting. So I much prefer like a like a gruffer, 
less refined um, and still, like, ice-like uh, top when I'm on my hunt. But I haven't been, like, looking for gay men in, like, maybe two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, well, since I saddled up, that's been the, <laughs> the case. But are, are you in, in your... Uh, are you and your man sort of monogamous? Is that? Um, depends on the day. Yeah, same with yeah. me. And my guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I went into the relationship thinking it would have to be like that, but as uh, time has gone on and my youth has uh, reminded me of, of my age, <laughs> sometimes concessions must be made. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's another that's another plus of of being a gay person is that. Monogamy is just a very flexible thing, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, I don't know. I hate, I hate the, the dichotomy of monogamy and polyamory. It's just, it's so silly. There, yeah. there, you know, throughout history, there have been multiple sorts of gray zones between those two poles. So it's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous. If you trust your part, if you trust your partner, then you can fuck whoever you want. That's just how it looks to me. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's a lot of a discourse now about um, if it's like dirty to be like polyamorous or like why, like you should just stick to them. And I mean, like, I could not care less, honestly. <laughs> it's one of the it's most boring, so boring discourses. Yeah, it's so boring. It's like, I do not care what, I, like, there's no like political like comment to be made about it to me. It just is like, this is how gay people can function. It's like a little blessing from heaven, and mm-hmm. uh, let it go. Like who yeah. cares? <laughs> exactly. Just, just do what thou do what thou wilt, or whatever the saying yeah. is. Um, also, the the mic is uh, kind of picking up on I think what might be some beard noises. Oh, it could be. It could be a train. I'm living pretty close to a train station these days. Oh, I love the train. Keep the train going. That's okay, uh, yeah. that's also part of my show because the train goes by here too. I don't know what it was. There was like a rubbing noise. Have I heard that? Was the, that know? was the beard? I, I picked the the microphone away from the beard. <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. I'll get back into it. So, um, with this commentary on uh tops and bottoms and looking i think we're in a great place to kind of jump into what we're chatting about today which is voyeurism Mm -hmm. and uh for anyone who isn't aware of what it is i guess voyeurism is the act of observing uh, sexuality or nudity or people in an element in which they uh, do not know they are being watched and is a one of the most timeless and ancient of all paraphilias yes it's sort of foreign to me. I don't know about you. Like, I've never considered myself a voyeur. Do you consider yourself to be a voyeur? Certainly not. Um, no. I didn't really think it was that major either. But while I was, like, doing some reading for today, I found out it's, like, actually one of the most prevalent perverse sexualities or, like, I, I, you know, not a... It's one of the big ones, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it makes sense, I suppose, when I'm thinking back to... Like, some of the Mishima I've read among, like, even, like, less sexual authors, there's a lot of people looking through peepholes and observing things. But it's not something I've ever, like, encountered in that realm specifically. Mm-hmm. I remember it a lot in, in in Japanese films that I've seen, and I can't remember the directors. I just went through a period maybe 15 years ago where I was obsessed with Japanese film and would just check mm-hmm. out Japanese films from this local video store when it was still around. And I noticed that there were there were a lot of like erotic thrillers or just like erotic dramas produced in Japan in the 80s and 90s. And they always had uh, like like the voyeur 
was sort of like a key plot point. Yeah. And it's really odd. Like I, I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's hard to explain. It seems it's, I, the feeling I got then when I was watching those films was Japanese people still consider it to be still consider voyeurism to be like a perversion. And so it's interesting mm -hmm. enough to put into a film, but right. in America, I feel like everyone is already a voyeur. And so we don't really see that much in film. Mm -hmm. Am I, how do you feel about that? Am I wrong? I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, one of the reasons it might be so prevalent here is because it's like a, a large plot point and a lot of like no drama in the Kabuki theater. Uh. And, uh, then during like the 70s and 80s when the uh, pink Uega, like pink movie movement was uh, really prevalent in Japan and people were making just tons of uh, really artistic pornographic films that were like an hour long and like people would just throw money at these directors to go and uh, make anything they want as long as like there was a sex scene every eight minutes or like tits came out every like 15 or something. Wow. So... That is definitely another contribution to it. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the best parts of like Japanese filmmaking culture is that the social culture is still so conservative and repressed. So mm -hmm. like in their art and in like their sexual activities, there's like so much more room for like interesting fucking and like interesting images of uh, you know perverse sexualities that seems like kind of like commonplace and banal to Americans, like you mm -hmm. were saying. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I think you, like, whenever I watch gay porn, there's always, like, a you know, there's, a, well, not always, but there's often a scene where there's a voyeur, but they always get involved, you know, they're never mm -hmm. just, like, strictly watching surreptitiously from behind a curtain or something. It's right. Do you think cucking is voyeurism? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, like, the, at least the original definition of voyeurism was to imply that the party being seen is not aware of them being observed. So that would kind of defeat the purpose of like cuckoldry. But as the time right. has gone on, I think the definition has loosened enough that you could probably play it that way. Right. It's never been my, my bag, but I've known people who are into it and they, they always start off being the voyeur, but then, you know, they get involved in one way or another because they're gay men and, you know, they can't see yeah, something. can't keep their hands to themselves <laughs> or or they can't see a project through to completion <laughs> right <laughs> not even after voyeurism can be exactly by a gay man they're like i'm yeah. hiding i'm hiding no here i am here's my dick you know that's that's how it ends up oh, i know it's it's a uh, 20 seconds and then they get too excited and off they go <laughs> that would be me no 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 lie no i can't i um I can't imagine myself like ever going out of my way to like participate in trying to spy on people fucking um like but it is like such a like a prevalent thing in in cinema. I mean, I think back to Piano Teacher, which I bring up like every other. Oh week. yes, I love that film. Yeah, and like she like loves like staring into the car and like watching these people fuck so much that she has to pee on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love that scene. Oh my god, I forgot how amazing that movie is. Perfect. Yeah, I know. So good. I think one of the main problems with voyeurism now is that cinema itself and like watching a movie is like obviously a voyeuristic act because it's an image being presented to you that you are at least usually and typically removed from that you are gathering physical sensation from. And sometimes it can be like a abject horror or like a terror or discomfort. But usually it's like 
pleasure and endorphins and serotonin and obviously in the case of like pornography it's like sexual satisfaction as well right yeah i mean i guess that's the thing like whenever i watch porn i'm always a little disappointed that i'm not there if it's hot Mm -hmm. so i don't necessarily think i'm i've ever been a voyeur maybe it's i think it's maybe one of those things when you're older like i know a lot of sex workers gay sex workers and they say that um when when men reach a certain age you know when they really just physically can't do what they used to do sexually they will hire two sex workers to have sex right there in front of them Mm -hmm. and they'll watch and so it makes sense and i can i can see the the draw that there's something kind of kinky about being excluded right do you know that that doesn't appeal to me now but i can never i can't say that it won't in the future yeah, well, when I was talking with Christian on my gay porn episode, we talked a lot about how, like, uh, one of the most important parts of a pornographic film is, like, how you identify with one of the actors in the scene or, like, who you're kind of projecting yourself onto. Mm-hmm. But as a uh, pornographic film has sort of, like, fallen from the graceful state it was in, like, during, like, the 80s and what have you, mm-hmm. it's been become, like, more and more like just a mere act of voyeurism instead right like there was a brief uh there was a brief uh fad i've noticed i mean i'm not really in the gay porn world i just i've never paid for it i just watch it you know <laughs> yeah you know but i remember there were a pov thing was a big deal like five or six oh, years yeah. ago remember that and i was just like oh this is going to be the new form of porn where you you have a point of view of the person you want to be and i even saw some porns that would have you know the bottom would have a pov and the top would have a pov and you could pick which one you wanted and i was like oh this is the new model for porn but i think that was almost too much for people because i think you're right i think that the dominant mode of of sexual consumption of things like porn and even fantasies in america is voyeuristic so people wanted to be excluded people wanted to be sort of cucked and that's why the pov thing didn't catch on so much that's gorgeous i mean Mm -hmm. i think that a lot of my favorite movies in the past, like obviously they like, engage in this um, voyeurism, but it's not like true exclusion. You know, you're being involved in it. And w- one movie I always go back to when I'm thinking about this is like Carrie, because so much of that movie is looking and watching and like seeing these like terrible things happening in front of you. But it always is like forcing you to identify with the, a variety of the characters like obviously Carrie White but even in the prom sequence and watching like the horror of like these people you've seen like in their natural element for an hour and a half it like mm-hmm. lets you jump into them too wow that's right i never thought of that as being a voyeuristic film but you're right it most definitely is yeah like, and with that intro sequence with all the girls and the towels like uh, just like getting their tits out <laughs> yeah <laughs> And the huge orgasmic ending when she just says, you know, fuck everyone. She's going to burn them all down. Oh, yeah. That that movie is literally like a sex act. Like it ejaculates at the end with the, with the prom scene. Literally. And then, and then the coda. Like I, lo- I loved the novel when I was a kid. I was kind of obsessed with Stephen King when I was like, you know, 12 years old. And I was obsessed yeah. with that novel. I've probably read it three times. And And after her huge explosion and, you know, she goes to see her mother it feels like a post-orgasmic come down, you know, yeah. when you, you look at the person you just fucked and you see their flaws and you just can't wait for them to leave or something. You know, that's, that's what it felt like when she went to go see her, 
her mother at the end. It was, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and you you, uh, you can't wait to return to the innocence of the womb of the mother, but then she literally stabs you in the back. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, it's cool that you bring up mothers because we're going to talk about um, Refn Windig and like he has a lot to say about mothers. Oh, he has a lot to say about mothers. Yes, <laughs> he definitely he does. Yeah. I think that one of the great tragedies of filmmaking now is that like the sort of viewing experience where like yes the audience is kind of in on the voyeuristic act but a lot of it was like empathetically played as to involve the audience somehow in the narrative but as time has gone on I think like the audience has been more and more abstracted from the viewing experience and now we're kind of in a place like when you go sit down to see a Marvel movie or mm-hmm. like even like A24 stuff it's much less about invoking the audience in the film but it's actually more about kind of uh pleasuring and terrorizing them from a distance ah so they are the voyeur we are we are the right. voyeur. yeah that makes sense yeah. yeah and it's a i think a larger symptom of the <clears throat> cultural moment we're in right now because so much of uh the work of neoliberalism and uh, kind of like the democratic complacency we're in is just to kind of subdue into a blissful, easy, unquestioning state. Yes, that's so well put. Perfect, perfectly exemplified with my life over the past year of being unemployed and on unemployment and spending way too much time on social media for kind of the first time in my life. And, mm-hmm. and that's how it feels. You're like social media is inherently sort of an, a voyeuristic platform where you feel like you're engaging, but the engagements are, are just sort of symbolic, you know, you engage with someone so that they will react and you can watch them react, you know? So it, mm-hmm. it feels, yeah, like it feels like, yeah, again, it feels like the the dominant paradigm is, is voyeurism right now. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, just so many opportunities to look, but not to be involved in like any capacity of things. And like, that's what the, the kind of frightening element of all of this is, is like the more you're placed in a role of like inactive, like passive voyeur, like, the more insidious stuff can happen in front of you without you being able to take any action against it. Right. You can only comment on it and commenting on it is basically just jerking off about it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we, we all sort of know that like, like um, I used to sort of labor under the delusion that sort of entering into the stream of discourse on Twitter or in conversations or, I don't know, I went to DSA meetings for a while, mm-hmm. like a total asshole. Like you think that like sort of uh, throw, throwing your, your, your bit into the ring of the discourse makes a difference, but no, you're really just commenting on something that's predetermined and sort of happening already in front of you. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. And that's the, the scary thing about like where activism has ended up now too, because I think at least about like, you know, everyone kind of discounts, like, the, like, 69 activism and stuff, but at least, like, I saw people trying, you know, mm-hmm. even if it was, like, for kind of a malfunctioning cause that led nowhere, mm-hmm. like, at least when I look back at, like, images of, like, the riots in Tokyo, it's, like, I see people at least trying to stage intervention, 
But then if you look at like the BLM disaster last year, mm-hmm. that was is absolutely not any sort of action. It's uh, no. really just like making uh, that like voyeuristic claim on like the death of George Floyd. And it there's a complete failure in my mind. Absolutely. And like, especially when it sort of devolved to the point where, you know, no one was, they weren't setting fires and they weren't burning cop cars. They were just like walking up to patio restaurants and knocking over tables and yelling at people. And it was obvious that they were doing that in the heat of the moment because they felt like they had to do something. But mm-hmm. the end result was that the videos were just consumed by millions of voyeurs on the internet. Yeah. So yeah, like it's also I think, castrated. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's oh, it's two Ugh, cucks, right? Two, <laughs> two two castrated cucks who are fucking for the American public is how it felt for me. My God, it absolutely feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a, it was shocking watching it happen from the other side of the planet, where mm. like it was like four p.m. usually for me, like when the stuff would like start happening again like at night in like portland or whatever Mm -hmm. and seeing all of this like useless gesticulating where it was all of these the terrible little shows that led to nowhere it was very disheartening to watch yeah yeah if, if it was a voyeuristic action watching watching the blm you know protests and things and i've known a few people who went to them Mm-hmm. Um, and some, you know, some people that I know who went to them were engaged and they were, they believed that it was something that was, was good that needed to happen. And then I knew other people who went as, you know, sort of like voyeurs, they wanted to watch it happen. And they all said, it just felt like an immense impotence, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's, yeah, that's, we all watched 2020 happen. And even the people who were involved were sort of watching it. You know, every, everyone, everyone was a voyeur, but the problem was no one really got hard and came. Everybody was impotent. You know, it was just, the whole thing was just like two bottoms playing with each other's soft dicks for the whole year, you know, and, and yeah. it was just so pathetic. Like I, literally, I just sort of hang my head in embarrassment when I think about 2020, because, you know, I think everyone who has everyone who was a radical when they were a teenager, you know, like I've kind of been a political radical, whatever the fuck that means. Like now sure. I sort of disavow it. But, you know, I was a communist when I was 16 or whatever. And I've always sort of held on to that. So so watching this was it was such a failed, failed, impotent thing. And I think that that was so much more spiritually defeating for someone like me than I think a lot of other people who are like, you know, 21 and just jumping into this shit because it was especially pathetic to watch the young people think that it wasn't just two bottoms playing with their soft dicks you know like they thought that it was really something happening and that to me that was just so much more embarrassing and yeah i prefer not to think about it (laughs) no i feel the same way because i um you know in the last like two years i've been like really trying to like get a robust like sense of politicism for myself um like outside of just reading shit on twitter like you know actually reading theory or whatever Mm -hmm. and when the riots started happening it was like oh like people can actually gather together and do something but that clearly was not the case and you know even like i I don't even feel comfortable calling that like the left or whatever like whoever was behaving out there but if you look on the other side with like the capital riots it's exactly the same 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every everyone, I feel like every everyone in the in the in America, maybe the West, but I can't speak for that. But America, it just feels like every everything politically and culturally is just absolutely impotent. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that American culture has traded the erotic for the pornographic and we all know that if 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 there's no mystery in sex which you know that is what the erotic is it's just this mystery this like imminent sort of what it's an delusion language or whatever it's like an imminent becoming where you you don't know what's going to happen next that's what the erotic Mm. is you don't know what this guy is going to do to you or what you're going to do to him it's just everything that happens is a mystery when that's traded for the logic of pornography where you sort of know what's going to happen next you know when you watch porn you're like oh now he's going to flip him over in fucking missionary style now he's going to do that you're like because every porn has a has a sequence but eroticism doesn't have a sequence you don't know what's going to happen and it just feels like like our entire culture has traded the erotic for the pornographic and so no one can truly get it up because there's no mystery like we all sort of know that neoliberalism has won and we will die under this regime and yet all political activism is just like this sort of impotent voyeuristic exercise and yeah it's sorry i'm, I'm being really depressed no 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 you're you're on to, <laughs> you're so right i was just waiting to jump in and scream so true sis go off <laughs> no like it's so true and i mean i think it's because everyone is now merely a viewer like no one is yeah. there's no actors anymore everyone no. is viewing constantly mm-hmm. america is merely one enormous eye looking at everything and uh never using its hands to do one action at all right which is sort of like the the and i think that's what america is dealing with right now is you know for for like before our lives and during it for the past you know 20 years well until they'll pass until 20 years ago the american cultural imperialism imperialism was such that all eyes were on america you know and america knew that america knew Mm -hmm. that it had to perform for the eyes of the rest of the world and now it just feels like everyone like as you said everyone in america is just like it's an eye looking at itself or something because we know the rest of the world is embarrassed by us. America knows mm-hmm. that the rest of the world is disgusted with us right now. <laughs> but, you know, you'd have to be a fool to not notice that. Yeah, staring in the mirror as opposed to a screen, which sounds like absolutely the most frightening, abstracted form of voyeurism, where now you're not even like looking at other people, you're just like looking at yourself. Yes. Oh. And and endlessly critiquing yourself. I think that's the thing. The American psyche is just endlessly critiquing itself you know like uh like the like the sort of like the weird myth of of you know all pervasive white supremacy in america and and racism being like its founding doctrine and things like this Mm -hmm. like that that is literally just america looking at itself in a mirror and plucking its eyebrows you know what i mean it's like it's not getting anywhere it's not it's not fundamentally changing itself it's just dealing with the cosmetic effects of itself and yeah, the culture of narcissism, you know, it's, I, I read Lash, you know, because it was hip and trendy, you know, and Anacacia and I'll do whatever she tells me. And, of course. Um, and uh, <laughs> I read it and I'm just like, yeah, this, yeah. You know, it, it was great to read it. And, and, you know, I would be sitting in a bar reading this book and read a certain passage and stand up and yell like, yes, 
But when I finished the book, I was just like depressed. You know, I'm just like, oh my God, mm-hmm. like when, because you think of how history works and this man predicted all of this shit 35 years ago and you're just like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, my experience reading Glamorama for uh, last week where mm-hmm. I just kept seeing things that were so true. I was like, oh my God, he was aware of it 20 years before any of it started happening. And the tragic part is that uh, he made the prediction, he warned everyone mm-hmm. and Yet here we are standing in front of the mirror, like stabbing tweezers into our skull until like, right. until what end? Until we like bleed out and die? Like, I don't know where this is supposed to go. It makes me so happy that I assume you're younger than I am, that younger people are reading Glamorama because I thought uh, five or six years ago that that book had been sort of lost to the sands of time. And I read it literally when it came out. You know, I, I think I was 16 or 17 when I read it yeah. and it absolutely changed my life. And I sort of, I sort of heeded his warnings in a way, in a subconscious way, you know, like mm-hmm. there's some, that's how great literature works is you're not thinking about these things consciously. They, you know, a, a good book or a good movie will just change who you are. It doesn't change the way you think, I think, I believe. And right. so I've, I've just never felt at home in this world as I've seen it go down the path that I knew it was going simply because of reading stuff like that when I was, you know, too young to be reading it. No one, no one should really read. Well, no, that's not true. I think plenty, <laughs> everyone should, everyone should read Glamorama when they're 16, yeah. but no one should live in the fucking world that it predicted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like now, instead of like these novels that kind of like uh, subfuse you with um, this, uh, philosophy and this way of uh, warning uh, instead like we have you know Black Panther and mm-hmm. Ari Aster like coming down to wag their finger at you and tell you what not to do Winding Refn is a Danish director and one of my favorites. I'm curious how you kind of got exposed to him. Oh God, how did it happen? Uh, I think uh, I have friends who are really into film and someone told me years ago to the first film I saw from him was Only God Forgives. I think oh, okay. I, missed, I missed Drive, mm-hmm. um, which was first. And then someone told me you have to watch only God forgives. 
and this was uh like an older gay like estate estate friend mm. of mine who was really into like you know art films like they're like in their late 60s or something and they're like you have to watch this film only god forgives oh my god and i i literally went home that night and downloaded it and became obsessed and i th- th- that movie came out in what 2012 yeah some, sometime around then yeah and so i think that year i just downloaded all of his films and like gorged on them and was kind of obsessed and then yeah. I, saw, I saw drive which i, I loved drive but after seeing only god forgives drive was sort of a pale imitation to me um, right and um and then just recently found out again about uh too old to die young the amazon prime tv series from my favorite uh art critic on twitter that i've met adam lehrer oh awesome he's great he's so good yeah like i found out about it from him because he, we're in dms together all the time and he's like oh my god you got to check this shit out and i was like shocked at myself for not knowing about it and then immediately got it and just kind of devoured it um so that's it yeah i found out about him sort of around the way absolutely yeah i guess for me it's <laughs> kind of the reverse is that i had a crush on Carrie Mulligan, like a little like gay boy crush on her when yes. I was like 12. And I fell in love with her when I saw an education for the first time and it like spoke to my spirit. And so then um, from that time on, I would basically just watch anything that she was in. And one of those was of course drive. Mm-hmm. And I still remember the first time I watched it, I watched it with my dad and like, we just put it on the enormous TV. Uh, it was like a car movie. So I thought he would be into it. And then Watching the movie unfold in this extremely slow and at first like sort of unsatisfying but hyper romantic like visual setting, I felt like a like a forlorn like kind of resilience in my gut watching it. And since mm-hmm. then, I, I've watched everything that he's done. Um, and I uh, I loved Only God Forgives. I tried to get my mom to take me to go see it at the art theater two hours away, and she wouldn't, mm-hmm. so I had to download it onto my PC. But even just watching it on, like, my cracked little screen in high school, mm-hmm. it just, like, seeps with, like, visual power. It's amazing. It's the, the tension. Like, he's he's probably the most sadomasochistic filmmaker I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know how he just... he. He tortures you and and you love it. And I can't think of any other, you know, because obviously people will compare him to Lynch and, you know, he, he obviously did too old to die young as a response to Twin Peaks season three or whatever, but, but Lynch doesn't so much torture you. He entertains you with the long takes and the, the, the huge pauses between lines spoken and things like that. But, but there's something in, in, in Revan Windig where it, it feels like he's consciously torturing you and you're either strong enough to take it or you back out and you turn it off and watch a Marvel movie or something. And I think that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, I think that's his prime modus operandi as an artist where he's literally culling the herd, mm-hmm. you know, that, and I think that respect that that's what I respect most about him. Like he's definitely a very, nuanced intelligent filmmaker but without being intel intellectual he's not intellectual yeah. and that's what's great about it but he he literally doesn't give a fuck what you think he's looking for specific people who are going to watch his films and he doesn't want everyone to see his films 
and that is that sort of intrinsically works against the logic of neoliberalism you know and that's why i feel like he's such a brilliant filmmaker for our time because he literally is just he's seeking his audience he doesn't give a fuck about anybody but his audience right and calling the herd is such a great way of describing like the way he makes movies and the reason i i paired him with like uh perverse voyeurism is because so much of his filmmaking is this experience of like you said like getting tortured and being involved and like acted upon by the movie and it's uh, often such an unfriendly and aggressive experience that a lot of people will kind of um, get turned off immediately, which is why uh, Drive is so controversial, which, mm-hmm. I mean, shocks me because it, it's conventional in so many ways. But the way that he like, teases trope and drags out like the these silent moments just appalls and offends people that they have to watch a, a movie that sounds and looks like it does. Right. I remember when I first saw Drive, it, it felt like, like I went into it knowing that it was sort of like his Hollywood movie, you know, like I'd read mm-hmm. some things online or something and, you know, reviewers were like, this is his big Hollywood movie. And, and I was just like, oh, okay, cool. And I was expecting, you know, I think I like hit the bong a few times and was watching it with a friend and we expected like car chases and action. We wanted to yeah. turn our brains off and it was the opposite, you know, like, yeah, the, like, he and Carrie Mulligan, their their silences are so incredibly sexy. Like those are yes. the silences that everyone wants when you are meeting a, a potential partner or sex partner or something. Is that those silences? That's what you want. You don't want to just fill the the space with chatter. And he doesn't do that. And so for me, it it like I think I watched it with a friend, and he was just kind of bored halfway through and looked at his phone. But I was just wrapped. I was just just glued to the screen the entire time mm-hmm. and ever like it, it feels like a gift because you know everything else we get not and I'm, I'm not just even talking about the marvel you know the the comic book movie universe i'm talking about like even art films you know like if you look at the safety brothers like you know like they're the, what are, i think they're considered like the paragons of art film now or something in america and, mm-hmm. and even they just like everything has to be constantly chattering people have to be constantly talking so it just felt like such a gift to watch a film from a guy who was going to let you enjoy these silences between these people. Yeah. It felt really transgressive in a way. Transgressive is absolutely the, the way to describe his movies. Yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking about, those silences, because whenever I think back on my first time, like viewing drive, like the moment that it started becoming like transcendental to me mm-hmm. is like when like uh, Ryan Gosling as the driver, like leans in to like kiss Carrie Mulligan in the in the elevator, and yes. it's like it's this very long like three minute scene that then immediately like explodes into violence. But like the lead up to it is like so aching and long, like you feel every longing emotional sensation in it. It's amazing. Yes, and like that was especially great because they finally got the like shitty husband out of the way, and they were able right. to do it. So like it was this. Yeah, there's, there's a thing about his films where I think that on the surface, when you watch them the first time, you don't catch the subtlety and the craft that's going on. You think mm-hmm. this guy is just being self-consciously arty and sort of pretentious or something, which attracts me as a gay Me too, when, yeah. Yeah, when I, when I see someone who's being sort of self-consciously arty, uh, even, if, even if it fails, I'm like, that's better than what everything else we're given. But right. what's so brilliant about his stuff is that it is kind of like self-conscious art arty farty parody but it works like there's so much subtleties 
you know like the the plot of of the plot of drive was pretty much spoken you know like the the characters told you what was happening but and only god for i mean uh, only god forgives and too old to die young like the plot was just barely driven by like one line of dialogue and every 20 minutes of the film you know like, yeah. that's that's incredible that's like from what i know of film that's pretty masterful to be able to pull that off to hold someone's attention that long no doubt and i mean despite all his artfulness and his extremely curated really intense like visual style and everything mm-hmm. you said earlier that he's not like an intellectualist and i think that's exactly right because so much of his subject matter is like hollywood film like familiar stuff like mm-hmm. in drive we have the you know forlorn driver in the neon demon we have models like mm-hmm. um in too young uh, too old to die young got it <laughs> have, <laughs> I, <know> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to retype it every time i say it but yeah um and in that movie it's like the the drug cartel and like the <laughs> bad cop it's like all of these like familiar characters but the way that like he kind of gives them emotionality and like expresses their motivation is like in this fabulous silent visual assault on you yes like he he will show you more of what a character is or who a character is you know there's a difference between the who and the what by just like a five minute pan across them standing in a tableau Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And instead of instead of giving you a backstory, you know, like by the time you get the character's backstory, it's almost redundant because you already know in a way who this person is. But then again, also the characters are also just like ciphers. They they're not even characters. They're just like bare archetypes. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Like I I'm so glad you you asked me to do this because I I've been thinking about this guy's films and sort of forgotten about them. And then just over the past week or so, watching them again was really energized and sort of encouraged that that someone is making art on this level again yeah and again like like we both said like he's not making intellectual art he's not he's he's i almost think he's kind of kind of like a you know how david lynch is kind of an idiot you know he's not he's not (laughs) intellectual he's just kind of tapping into his subconscious in in a way that's that most people can't i feel like refin is doing the same Mm-hmm. And the, and his take on America is incredible. Like he's able to see America for what it is more than an American filmmaker would be. And that he's just, he's just tapping into our subconscious. He's, he's able to do it more than an American could right now. Yeah. And it's really satisfying, like watching the trajectory of, of his career where he started kind of making these hard boiled like uh, Danish crime dramas. Like we had the Pusher trilogy and uh, Bleeder and uh, then his like first English language film, which was Fear X. And those are, they're kind of conventional in a similar way to his later period work where it's these characters who have a pretty like simple sort of archetypal like cipher roles uh, in the film. But he lets, like, the drama and, like, the pain of their, like, experience kind of sink in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what kind of disconnects me from his earlier stuff is that, like, they are so much more conventionally movies. Mm-hmm. And I like them. And I really enjoyed Pusher, which I, I saw for the first time last mm-hmm. week. And uh, the way that, like, the dread kind of, like, sinks in without it being 
directly like revealed like why and how this stuff is happening to the protagonist but um because it is like more of a conventional like viewing experience i found them to be like fine movies but not as like genius or revolutionary as his later stuff right because they were too literal like um, yes that's it it's because they're too literal yeah that's the thing and and like everything in our culture right now especially like the sort of the hegemony of liberal culture and in american society everything has to be literal mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it has it, there can't be there's there's ambiguity in politics you know like like aoc is just an ambiguous figure and people like this you know like they're like yeah. they're all ambiguous but but our culture is very literal like you can't right. you have to you have to tell people what they're seeing you know it's an infantilization move you have to you know it's like like you know all the big budget hollywood movies are basically for children and adults mm-hmm. are watching them so it's like incredible to watch a, a, an artist who's able to to do that who's able to deal with sort of ambiguity and 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 symbols and things like that yeah yeah and i i think that makes a a lot of like sense and you bring up the Safety brothers earlier, who I like. Like I really like. Oh, I love them gems. too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, but they're extremely literal too. Like, yeah. Um, and I mean, the movies they're making now are basically what Pusher was doing, like in the in the nineties. Like, yeah. The the crime and like the things are just getting worse and worse, and you like can't get out of like this anxiety hole. Mm-hmm. Is just virtually what Pusher was doing before, and um, even though like Uncut Gems, which I I love, is like gesturing at a lot more like larger ideas of like uh, time moving and like culture passing down to lead to these situations or whatever. Um, it is like much more fiercely literal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uncut gems. There's, there's no, there's no subtext or eroticism or any of that. And good time is my favorite. Like good time mm-hmm. is my favorite one that I've seen from them. I think that's kind of their peak and yeah, same thing. Like, you know, where it's going, you know, where it's headed it's great you know it's like kind of a remake of taxi driver or something and you know like and you know people compare ref and windig to to lynch again but like lynch kind of does the same thing in a way like you know that the the conscious mystification he does of his own plots is you know sort of on purpose or something but right but ref and windig doesn't do that he he tells you the the he tells you the story the way he wants to tell it. And it feels really masculine and hot the way he does it. Yeah, I you know agree. What I mean? and yeah. No, I do. I, I think that one of the prevailing parts of his movies is like the the masculinity, which of course is an immediate turnoff to the current like state of how people yes, watch yes. art. Is it that he makes extremely subjective male movies mm-hmm. and um even when he there his uh subjects are like women the movie is like still very much like a male film and i think it is kind of in like the same line as like scorsese's like early stuff where he had like that intense subjectivity about angsty men mm-hmm. um and even though he kind of like forced started like forsaking it as as his career went on like mm-hmm. Refn between like Fear X, which is about like a a widowed husband and his uh, you know fury and his uh, lack of ability to act on it. Like between that and all of these like men like struggling to make do with their drug dealing and like the pusher films, it like is only the logical extension as 
his movies go on that the masculinity becomes like even more like warped and specific as like we have like moved into his later part of his career yes um i don't remember the punisher series that much uh, but i do remember bronson and that felt like a sort of an indictment of masculinity in a way mm -hmm. it you know it it sort of critiqued masculinity but it was overwhelmingly felt like an indictment but but drive only god forgives and too old to die young felt like like they were working on two levels they were in sort of an in, not so much an indictment of of masculinity but like uh almost a valorization of masculinity like those scenes in only god forgives where you keep you know to me only god forgives was sort of a parable about masculinity that doesn't assert itself properly mm -hmm. you know like how we kept you kept seeing the, the shots of his hands you know and then and this is a spoiler for people who haven't seen it but you should watch it anyway but you know we kept seeing shots of his his hands his arms and you're like why am i seeing this and then at the end of the film you see that his hands are cut off by the cop who's been chasing him down because yeah. he wasn't able to stand up against his mother right you know he, was, he has just two big cocks for hands and uh yeah they, they don't they don't end up anywhere because like you said like they get cut off because he's not able to you know confront his mother and surmount her right right and in a competent way you know like you get the feeling that if he were to confront his mother he would just kill her as opposed to like being able to confront her you know emotionally and intellectually like a man you know should absolutely and i um it makes me think of that sequence when um uh ryan gosling like brings like his like little girlfriend prostitute lady to dinner with um, oh god i love that scene. Mother. i love that yeah, scene. played by a kristen scott thomas right yes yes and she is sitting there in the most beautiful dress with this blonde hair and a cigarette and she just starts eating that girl up talking about her pussy and like how poor of a fuck and how small ryan gosling's dick is in comparison <laughs> to his brother it's so good so good and my favorite is when she just orders for everyone at the table you know she's yes like, she's she's obviously asserting herself as the the patriarch of the family and we have little ryan gosling sitting over here just sulking you know just like you know and obviously i think weffen reffen wendig hates that like he realizes that that is a perverted nature do you right. know what i mean not yeah. not so much like a patriarchal assertion of masculinity is dominating but masculinity as being able to rise to the occasion that's mm -hmm. it that's what that's what masculinity does is it it rises to the occasion and it takes care of business it asserts yeah yes it asserts itself and and it's it's not even a masculine feminine feminine thing in a way it's just sort of like and, you know and, and of course like you know by no means are men the ones who assert masculinity and women can do it just as well it's just it's it's that i feel like his films are mostly about the crisis of masculinity we're experiencing right now or the the crisis of taking action mm -hmm. it's very Mac no, you're right. very Macbeth. like uh, like uh, when i watched uh, only god forgives recently i was just like this is kind of a Macbeth thing he basically kind of like wow. remade Macbeth in a way of like like a young man who can't decide you know who just like a young man who's stuck in indecision and yeah as much as his films don't deal directly with politics except for too old to die young which does and we'll get to that but but I think he's he's 
he's identifying the psychosexual crisis of our time, which is just like a failure to sort of take action. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's a, a theme that has been like pushing, like like you said, since Bronson, which um, like I watched last night for the first time. And it's so funny watching this like post Joker and all of this for the first time. And like these movies that are allegedly like, you know, fodder for whoever incels are supposed to be and are like capable of engendering violence in young men. Uh, but then we have like Bronson from like the late 2000s that mm-hmm. is explicitly just like a crisis of masculinity over like an hour and a half mm-hmm. and um, like desperately fighting to give like young men like something to live for, even as like the state of masculinity is failing in the movie. Right, right. And I feel like that, like that, that's what, what I got mostly from Too Old to Die Young, all 13 mm-hmm. hours of it. Was, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, 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 uh, I read Adam Lehrer's piece in uh, filthydreams.org, which is great. And he sort of mentioned the, the, the connection that Refn has with, uh, Refn Windig has with Alejandro Jodorowsky, which is yes. a filmmaker I've always been sort of indifferent toward, like, to be honest, like, I, I feel like he's a, he's a good artist, but like his time is done or something, but, but, um, where was I going with that? Um, oh God, I lost my train of thought. But how he was talking about um, how uh, sorry, oh, like their working relationship because he always is uh, like Refn is always like going to uh, consult him in like Europe and always like talks with him about like yes. the, yeah what like the script looks like and everything and um, yeah right. I think well, he they, was, he was talking about like uh, Lara was bringing up how how he was he was introducing like you know uh, like occult themes and things like that. And there were all these occult themes and like, you know, references to like mes- Mexican mysticism and things like that, which I, I really enjoy, even though I'm Me like too. kind of a strict materialist. I, I look at that stuff as just like purely symbolic. I, I kind of don't like too much woo-woo bullshit. And <laughs> I really don't. Like it just, as soon as people start referencing the tarot, I'm like, okay, all right, fast forward. But what the film did more than anything else, the entire 13 hours of it just felt like, a meditation on the crisis of masculinity and Mm -hmm. that that's what was so fascinating to me about it was that he was using all of these other things you know he was using the violence the the voyeurism the 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 problem the consciously problematic issues of like pedophilia into old to die young and things like that he was using that all as a way to build a scaffolding to talk about the crisis of masculinity that not just men are feeling, but that our entire Western society is feeling. Of course. And I think one of the reasons that he's capable of like getting out these ideas without it coming across as like overly intellectualized, like bronze age pervert bullshit. Is right, that right. It like comes from like his approach to filmmaking, which is that he often like goes to set with a like outline of the script, but then is actually writing it every day as like the movie progresses and like consulting the cast and like what they think should happen and then he uh, shoots his films chronologically and then every day shows up to set with like new pages like new scenes like new things they're doing and it wow. like, results in like these uh and he did that to an extreme with um too old to die young got it again look at me go <laughs> <laughs> you got it <laughs> i keep wanting to say too old to die too young to die old which is yeah me sense. too yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy that he's capable of like pulling that off in a filmic setting that is like 13 hours long, but because he is 
addressing like these like subconscious feelings without actually like sitting down to say I'm going to write a story that says this and this about whatever. It defeats all literalism and turns it into this transcendental like subjectivity. It's amazing. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the transcendental thing because like literally uh, I was reading a couple of days ago, the Paul Schrader book. Um, I forgot what it's called. It was about transcendental, transcendental film. Oh yeah. 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 It's great. I like, I'd never read it before. And uh, I just, I was reading through it and literally, um, Deleuze, ta Deleuze talks about uh, time image in film and how it's right. represented by empty doors. And like that was almost like a, it's almost like Refn took that directly from the textbook to put it in Only God Forgives. Like if you remember Only God Forgives, there's just like shots of empty doors and you don't know if a character has walked through the door or is about to walk through the door. Mm -hmm. And that tension was just so exquisite to me when you would, You'd see a character, you'd see Ryan Gosling's face, and then you would see like a full minute and a half of an empty door. And that, that tension was just what made it work. You're just like, is he going through the door or has he gone through the door? You know, and like, we don't see that in film. Like we, you know, you don't see that in, in even like self-consciously arty, like gay films. And that's mm -hmm. another thing I've been wanting to ask you. Like, do you think that Refn could pull this off if you were a gay man? I don't. I don't know I, I, do, I don't I mean no. if so I think someone could probably um you know like Fassbender comes to mind as like someone who is yes. able to like just like throw out their whole image and like put them themselves like so like full-heartedly in their movies that it like um almost like incidentally becomes important but the the mode that Refn is operating in like definitely comes from a a point of view of his masculinity that I think that gay men are like kind of incapable of having Yes, exactly. Or even even gay men, like speaking for myself, like gay men who are, who are sort of adept at performing masculinity, like we're still susceptible to like indulgences of drama that someone like Refn isn't because like he's not a dramatic filmmaker. I, I've never seen anything that felt like drama in right. his films. Like it feels like something else. It feels it transcends drama. And I don't think a gay yeah. man is cop capable of that. Like, I mean, I think gay men can, like, you know, make amazing movies or whatever. And, but it's just, like, watching this film for some reason, like, especially with the character of Jesus, you know, the, the like, the young, like... Uh, the, the hot guy who goes to Mexico in the second yes. episode. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's so totally my type. It was just insane. I, I, <laughs> I, I grabbed too many screenshots of Jesus. I can't lie. Um, oh my but... god, I, he's so hot, and Miles Teller's hot in it too. That's something I want to yes. say is that every single man in every Refn movie is hot because yes. it's Refn just like asserting his like masculinity without like kind of um, commenting or like characterizing it. It's just like him like really like wrapping that power towel or the blanket or whatever it is he does on set and like just like. <laughs> Like oozing out his like maleness onto screen, so like we get like Ryan Gosling and his biceps like throughout. Only God forgives, and then like we have like um, Jesus and Miles Teller and, yeah. and two old to die young. It's so good. And he also understands that there's something about, and I don't know if because you know he obviously is dealing with you know issues of innocence and experience. You know he's mm -hmm. sort of a Blakeian. Like, like I kept thinking oh, of, yeah. of William Blake the whole time I was watching all this shit. Um, I would have never thought to put them together, but it makes so much sense. 
yeah like blake is sort of like i don't know he's my guiding star in life you know like his concept of just innocence versus experience and and the road to excess leads to enlightenment the shit like that you know and that's what i get that's what that's what that's why Refn Wendig turned me on so much because he's obviously an excessive filmmaker, you know, he's mm-hmm. not, he's not holding back anything, but, but Refn, Refn Wendig has kind of an obsession with like boyish masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've always thought, and it's not even an ageist thing because I've met dudes in their forties and fifties who like have maintained this, like not even a boyish look or an affect, but just like an, a boyish, essence you know and like one of my favorite quotes of all time is the best part of a man is the boy that's inside him because like all of all of ref and wendig's characters are young men who are trying to protect innocence in one way or another and that is such an elemental thing and you know we see that in like shitty hollywood movies all the time with like i don't know fucking liam neeson running around in trains and up and down stairwells and buildings you know like they're all trying to like protect innocence from the fracturing society and the, the barbarity and but yet ref and wendy you can tell he he he's not doing it in a contrived way he's literally he he literally loves these boyish young men and sees the Mm -hmm. sees the possibility and and the failures of them yeah absolutely and i mean like the the young man is an image that everyone is like a way too pussy to actually like sexualize and i mean i'm not advocating for like (laughs) making 16 year olds like our new porn stars or anything but like capturing the (laughs) maybe i happen whether you advocate it for or not (laughs) (laughs) but capturing like the essence of them and like you said like their their boyish element is like so missing and i love seeing it happen throughout his movies yeah it's so refreshing because I mean, I guess most of the time, you know, you see like action movies and they have like Gerard Butler, you know, who's like a man, a gruff man, you know, and then and and then in Ref and Windig's films, you see like especially in, in uh, Only God and uh, Drive. Like, yeah, it was amazing to me how this like this this, you know, boyish young man who is trying to exert exert his masculinity and he is doing his best to take action. He does at every turn. I think that's the one film where he actually does, he has a male character who does take action and doesn't mm-hmm. falter. And that's, that's why it's his big Hollywood movie because he knows that he has to show you what you want to see, which is, you know, a happy ending, even though it's not happy. Yeah, and then what we get, uh, you know, is like we have like this, you know, American Hollywood hero who is like gonna save the day, but it's just Ryan Gosling with his puppy eyes who just wants to kiss Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, I know. He doesn't even want to fuck her. That was what was so amazing about that film to me is that there was no, there were no sexual undertones. Mm-hmm. You know, like you never, you never thought uh, there was never a cut scene where you thought that, you know, Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan had sex. Right. And that was, that was that was, that in itself was kind of a trans, uh, transgressive thing to me. Even yeah. even though all eroticism has been removed from film and like pop music and stuff, I feel you know like everything has been like the 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 unknowability and non logic of eroticism has been replaced with the cold hard logic of pornography in our society. Certainly, like that film stood out because it was a big Hollywood movie where sex wasn't even 
involved it was something else like this this man wanted to build a family with this woman you could tell yeah. you know and that was that was really really transgressive i feel yeah absolutely and i think that's so beautiful that like he is like the the one hero that gets to you know objectively win is uh just a innocent ryan gosling his puppy eyes like wanting to smooch carrie mulligan and like live a beautiful golden light uh with in the, all of that like gorgeous like golden sunlight pouring through the windows as he gets to like be like a lovely yeah. domestic man and uh, then the, the the soundtrack of course to drive is like one of the the best movie soundtracks in recent memory and has like um all of these really dramatic hollywood like songs in them like oh my love or whatever and yes. like the the synthy like cliff martinez score mm-hmm. and all of it is like would in the hands of another filmmaker be like uh melodramatic glop but because it's like so earnest and you know beautiful in reference hands it like comes across in a completely different way right he's kind of a master in 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 working through the kitsch do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like he'll have like an incredibly kitschy scene and he's you know when i first saw drive i was just like okay here we go 80s revival he's doing the synths and he's doing the but no, it's it's something else. There's he's 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 working through the the kitchen, the references to get somewhere else, and that yeah is incredibly brilliant to me when someone doesn't make something derivative, but sort of like just like forges through the kitsch that they know they have to get through in order to get where they want. Yeah, it's like a noble effort to like dive through that glop and slime of like nostalgia and able to split it apart to actually say something. Yes, yes. Like, I feel like if you'd never seen an 80s movie with, you know, if you'd never seen a John Carpenter movie with the synths or whatever, if you were, you know, 16 when you saw that movie first, you would, you would, you wouldn't need those references, you know, because you just kind of transcended them. Kind of. my God. Pretty fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I love thinking about him that way. And one of the the movies I really want to get into detail that we've barely touched yet is The Neon Demon. Oh, Yes. So this was one of the main reasons why I wanted to even do a Raffin episode, despite loving his entire catalog, um, is because this movie is like the last, like it's the last stake post of where culture has come to in terms of like beauty and eroticism and sexuality. And it's the end point and so frightening and one of my favorite movies of recent memory. Yes, absolutely. Let's hear your take. Okay, my take is that this movie is basically like uh, Refn said that he wanted to make a movie about what it would mean to be beautiful. And of course, in his uh, masculine eye, like beauty is the uh, the young woman with uh, this fleeting quality that's going to, you know, evacuate from her eventually. But in the short window in which she can embody all beauty she becomes like the great fascist monster of all history where she like she like it's a very like mishima-esque you know like they get to turn into like these absolutely powerful like literally demon creatures that uh everyone bows to and the really like neutered creepy necrophilic sexuality of this movie is like kind of like the fallout of, of where culture has taken us yes that's a brilliant way of putting it. And that's, that's what I felt too, was that like all of his movies have been so obsessed with masculinity and then he made Neon Demon, which was 
uh, on the surface and purportedly about the the power of femininity and that's where i think the the brilliance lies in his project is it with that movie he sort of collapsed femininity and masculinity together into mm -hmm. into the the bare act of taking action you know what right. i mean because like the char the character in neon demon i forgot her name was you know she looked helpless the entire movie and she kept asserting in in very meek tones that i'm not helpless like i remember the there was a line where she's talking to this woman who's trying to you know take care of her and she's like i'm not as helpless as i look and mm -hmm. you know that that was amazing to me and it, it it was resonant to me because but then she ends up taking control of her entire situation and so it sort of collapses the distinction between masculine and feminine into just like what does it mean to take control of your life what does it mean to take action to do something yeah and because of that because of Ruffin earnestly approaching like the feminine or like the woman in his masculine voice of course this movie was like hated and reviled at, when it came out and people um were sh I, I remember when it came out it was like the most sexist film of the year it's sexualizing young girls like yeah. this movie isn't about the experience of women and i read this absolutely atrocious vox article yesterday where oh, the God. woman was just going off about how like this movie doesn't understand anything about the way that women inhabit the world but the, the fact of the matter is is that she's right like it doesn't and it's like not about that it's about like women in the world of men yes yes but i think my favorite scene was when she goes to have a photo shoot with this like famous photographer oh yes and she thinks it's going to be predatory and you know every like everything in all the cues make you think that he's just going to rape her but he covers her in gold and worships her yes you know like that was sort of the key key to the whole film to me and sort of a key to his sort of like his concept of sexual difference mm -hmm. you know like uh, he is it's again it's like you know paglia is back and that was a very poglian thing mm -hmm. where he sort of realized the the inherent power that femininity or women have simply by their extreme subservience or something does that yeah just by their, their like idol like beauty um yeah. and i'm glad you, you brought up that element of like looming sexual violence because like rape is always like happening in this movie but at a distance that you can't see and it's like you can like feel it in like the in the distance but it never actually happens in the movie like we never yes. see it like there are nightmares about <laughs> it there are like uh giant cat creatures inside the bedroom but like no one is actually like ever like hurt that way in this movie because it, it really is about like beauty and not so much about like uh like that p power of like sex crime or whatever right well because i think that's the thing is like uh i think i think refin windig i think he's aware of the fact that that eroticism is in a crisis and mm -hmm. what we're dealing with is again the logic of pornography and so he's not a pornographer he's not going to yeah. show you a rape scene but he will show you you know 12 heads being blown off at one time yeah you know that's a different thing and like and uh too old to die young one of my favorite scenes was when uh miles that's his name right miles 
goes to... That's the, the name of the actor. I actually can't oh, yeah, remember yeah. the cop What's name. The, I forget his name. Is it Martin? Martin, yeah. Oh, that's it. Martin goes to kill some rape pornographers in Albuquerque. <laughs> you remember that scene? And he gets <laughs> Yeah, there. I do. It's a, such a good setup. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. And it's it's so creepy, but so funny. And and there's a scene where like one of the the like the dumb one, there's like two brothers who are rape pornographers, and one is like a gay dandy who admittedly talks about having fantasized about having sex with his brother, but his brother, who is like the masculine dumb guy, is shown in a scene like grooming this young girl for a porn scene. And it's really tense. He like sprays her. Remember this? He sprays her down with water and it's like yeah. an insanely long take. And you think, oh my God, he's going to beat her up. He's going to rape her. He's going to do something horrible to her. And he paints her toenails. Yes. And yet it's still a rape scene. It was amazing. Like he raped her by painting her fucking toenails. Yeah. Cause I mean, that is just in the power of like Refn, like earnestly putting himself forward like he sees like the that violence and terror and like side moments like that whereas you know the pornographer like you suggested would just merely like castrate the audience and show them a rape and like make them witness it like little voyeurs but instead Refn like makes you like eat it and feel it by like showing you like that kind of violence and disgust like in that kind of action it's amazing it's cool he pulls you inside the twisted mind of the person of the rapist instead of mm-hmm. showing you the rape yeah it's, and again it's like it's like that that rape scene in wild at heart at um on for david lynch david lynch's right. wild at heart when you know it's you, you remember that when it's it's a uh, willem dafoe and laura dern and they're in a motel room and he's he's just like he leans in and sort of just like seduces her with his like creepy masculinity and he's just like tell me to tell me you want me to fuck you tell me you want me to fuck you and eventually she just says fuck me and then he walks away all like happy like haha see you later babe like that's one of the, <laughs> that's one of the most intense rape scenes i've ever seen because there yeah. was no actual like physical violence but it was it showed you what rape really is mm-hmm. you know and i think that that's it's that's amazing it's amazing that somebody can can pull that off and you can yeah. take that with you and realize that yeah rape is not good <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> unless it's you know two consenting adults and then it's not even really rape but you exactly know. that's not rape so what are you gonna yeah, do <laughs> exactly yeah yeah like actual rape not good never good yeah and there's a lot of people nowadays who are like really nervous about the state of film and you know rightly so because we both have agreed that so much movie making now is, you know, this deeply literal and, you know, boring act of uh, just kind of like performing in front of the audience. But whenever I, I remember that like Refn is like still getting financing to do stuff, it's like, mm-hmm. I believe that people are always going to be able to find a way to use the medium to speak earnestly and, and from their heart and their emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if they can't, at least we have podcasts, so... It's true. It's true. Yeah. Because literature <laughs> is dead in a way. Oh God. You know, like, yeah. That is a, that no boat one, has sailed. No one's, no one's writing books. Like it's film. And that's what's so, that's what's, that's what's so amazing to me is when you see a good film, it's, you know, if you if you read a good book, even now that literature is just kind of like dead, if you read a decent book, you're like, wow, that's great. You wrote this book, you know, that's, that's cool. But when you see a film, like, you know, something that, Refn 
Wendig is done. You're like, oh my God, like the hurdles you overcame to make this piece of art. Mm-hmm. And I think that since we all live in such a like uh, literal meta culture, everyone knows that intrinsically. You know, you're like, when you see something amazing, when you see an amazing piece of film, you're like, holy shit, you had to overcome this amazing hurdle to make this happen. So it's so much yeah. more like uh, victorious, you know? Right. Because I mean, movies cost millions of dollars. Like, there's no way to show a movie without having like extreme scores of like money put into it. And like the the fact that someone out there, like whether it be Amazon or, or anyone else is like giving this man money mm-hmm. to like, do this is at least a little affirming like i'm glad there's at least (laughs) yes absolutely it makes me feel it makes me feel good for the future of art just because i know that if if someone can do something like that and requires that much funding and connections and things like that then you know maybe maybe literature will come back to life maybe will people will start publishing good novels again yeah maybe we'll we'll find out yeah yeah odds aren't looking good but it's like and, you know, even though I do feel, you know, a little optimistic from, like, filmmakers like Refn and also, like, Blade Runner 2049 is one of them of, like, people who are sneaking by, like, these mm-hmm. totally inappropriate, like, not PC, like, disastrous kind of uh, art movies. Like, these are sort of diamonds in the rough. And yes. Adam pointed this out on the show two weeks ago, and it's, like, because the the actual amount of like stomachable film that's actually saying or doing anything is so scarce. It really makes what does get past stand out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm think thinking so. about all the movies I've seen in like the last two years that are, you know, new releases. And I saw Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, which is probably the only like truly amazing movie I've seen in like two years. And Wait, then like, you mean the recent one you just saw? Mm-hmm. I get them all confused, honestly. I'm I'm not like an Evangelion like completist. I've seen them all, but they all yeah. kind of get mixed together. And I kind of as as a Westerner, as an American, I kind of like it that way. <laughs> oh no, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, it's just all get a big really, mess to me. They get really look. obsessed with like having to know exactly how everything clicks together, and like with the the rebuild franchise, which is like purportedly a. Uh, series of remakes of the original series that starts like really diverting people freak out about like what is this like is it a mm-hmm. sequel like why is it being made like and everyone has to have like some neat little answer about it but it actually does not matter because the filmmaking is emotional and you don't need to know everything about the plot as long as you're like getting it in your stomach right yeah there, so there's some there's some cool correlations between evangelion and and ref and windig to me just in the fact that of how it's consumed do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no yeah, doubt. Like I mean, that's how I've consumed Evangelion where I've just like, I watched a bunch of episodes and then a year or two pass and I watched some more episodes and then I watched the movie here and there. And, and it's just all just like a, a dream in my head. It's not yeah. like, a, I'm, I'm, like, I don't have a fandom mentality and I really feel bad for those who do, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I should, but, but to me, like, that's when something is is really good is when you dream about it you know like i still have right. dreams about about evangelion sorry was wow that i love that <laughs> i love yeah. to hear that like um you're so right because people really like especially like this phantom mindset it's like all about plot like what happened did they get like the 
sequence of events that are like gambling on like boat races or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. it's like Again, the it's worst. It's literalism. It's literalism. It's literalism. Yeah. yeah, it's that's exactly when the problem of like artistic voyeurism rears its ugly head is when people are just like sitting and waiting for what they want to happen in front of them instead of like getting confronted and like activated by whatever they're watching so that they feel it and it like enters their brain and they dream about it yeah exactly it's a it's like the kind of dichotomy between expressionism or impressionism and literalism and um uh and point and the erotic and the pornographic you know and mm -hmm. and i like and i keep coming back to that i keep coming back to the fact that like all all mystery which you know er, the erotic is mysterious and and unknowable and ineffable everything has to be just like pornographically splayed out for you and so like when people approach something like evangelion and they have to be a completist and they you know the otaku who fucking collect all the the the, the fucking action figures the figurines i'm yeah, literally to me, staring at one so... that i have right now <laughs> yeah 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 well you know having one is okay but you know what i mean you know what I oh mean. no i i uh am unapologetic like i'm not like a fandom person but like i love putting up little shrines of evangelion in my house because then i get to feel like the little kick of joy that i get from the <laughs> theme it imparted on me <laughs> yeah well because it, it reminds you of the dream experience of the films you know it's, it's yes. not yeah, like that's the thing. Like you have the little the the little totem to remind you of the dream, as opposed to something where you just you feel like you've been able to like explain it all or or like like make it gynecological. Do you know? Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like to dominate the art and make it your own in order to be able to say that you understand it the best out of everyone else. Yeah, it's the which worst. which is why reference movies piss everyone off because you can't just sit there and recount what happened and get it like you have to be able to feel what you're seeing in order to enjoy any of his movies exactly yeah you have to just be there it's a transcend transcendental experience experience it's not a, a narrative or a, like a or a clinical experience and that, that i feel like that's what's so alien to western culture right now is like you you can't have it you can't have an can't have an impressionistic experience you have to know what everything is you have to know like i made a conscious decision to not read that much about refn wendig when i was preparing for this and watching the movies like i would look up an occasional review and then just like read two sentences and shut it off i'm like i don't want to know what anyone else thinks about this shit yeah like that's not what's important to me it's not you know unlike a say a safty brothers film which you watch a safty brothers film you like it you jump on the internet to see what other people are saying about it mm -hmm. because that's that's the register in which it's made it's made to generate buzz and conversation and things like that but like both lynch and ref and windig they working in a completely different register where it's almost like it's just you and the artwork and it's and that's the relationship like it's it feels gross to know like i don't really give a fuck what ref and windig thinks about his films like, i only care yeah. what i think about them right and I don't. I think that's is that just feels like an alien thing in our culture. I don't think many people feel that way. Like it's it's crazy because like uh, what I I look I watched Drive and then I jumped on Drive on the internet to look up a review of Drive just because I never read one, and then immediately saw like ending explained. And I'm like, who the yeah, fuck reads that ending the explained fuck? to them? Are you fucking kidding me? Like 
that would ruin the whole thing to explain exactly are you kidding me like explain it to yourself like yes blind your eye and just like feel like whatever it is that's going on in your genitals if you have them (laughs) exactly (laughs) (laughs) which i think i did get quite a genitalia experience genitalia response from the first time i watched that movie in my bed late at night like Oh god, like whenever yeah. the the first time I watched Drive when I was like quite a young teenager like was a a really sexually overwhelming experience because Ryan Gosling was just so hot to me. God, he's so hot. It's kind of obscene how hot he is. It's Yeah, it's not okay. <laughs> no, no. He's he's sort of like the prototypical like 